Well, it's a great privilege to be with you again this lovely summer's morning. This morning we're going to be turning to a passage in the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of the toughest preaching gigs in the New Testament, uh, but undeterred we're going to go into a passage which in itself isn't actually the easiest passage even in Galatians, but we're going to look this morning together at Paul's CV. Uh, the Apostle Paul was uh, a a seminal figure, a, a, a crucial figure in the early church. And there were many people in the early church who, um, as we'll see this morning, were casting doubts about his right to do the things he did. Uh, so that's the background as we pick up the story at verse 11 of chapter 1 in Galatians. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Back in August 2017, a man called John Andrews hit the headlines. Now, you may not remember his name, but you may remember his case. His CV stated that he had first-class undergraduate honours and a master's degree from Bristol University. He had an MBA from Edinburgh University, and he had not one but two PhDs, one from Plymouth and one from Harriet Watt. He also claimed that he'd worked for the Home Office and Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. It was an impressive CV by any standards. He used his CV to secure jobs as chairman of two NHS trusts in Torbay and Cornwall in England, where he earned over £100,000. It was only when he applied for early health retirement that it was discovered that he actually had none of the qualifications upon which he had got these senior jobs in the NHS. Now, I stand before you as a soon-to-be-retired senior NHS manager, and I, 
wish to assure you that our HR policies and procedures are a little bit more robust than that these days. John Andrews was, in fact, a builder. Now, if, the, if you're a builder here this morning, the Lord bless you. There's nothing wrong with builders, right? He ended up in jail for two years, and in 2022, the Supreme Court ruled that he had to pay back all that money, and nobody shed too many tears about that. But lying about your qualifications is more common than you would think. Over 50% of Americans admit to have lied on their resume, as they call it. And one in 12 Brits have done the same thing. And in fact, one in six, between the ages of 16 to 24, I'm looking around here, there are a few, many of them might be at the YF weekend or whatever, but there's a few 16 to 24 year olds here. Uh, one in six of you admit to lying on your CV and 20% of your age group say that that's an okay thing to do, just to give you a bit of competitive advantage. But lying about your qualifications in the world of work isn't serious, or isn't only serious, it can actually be quite catastrophic. There was a movie once called Paper Mask, which was about a guy who masqueraded in all of these ways to get a job as a doctor, and you can imagine the carnage that ensued on the back of that. But there's a greater danger still, even than becoming a doctor through false qualifications. Because what if around 24% of the New Testament written by Paul is actually a lie? Or is written by someone who didn't have the credentials or the right CV to write it? What then? What if he didn't have the authority to write as an apostle at all? What if the gospel he spread through Europe in the first century was wrong? What if it was the wrong version of the gospel? The gospel that claims to be the good news that you can be rescued from the consequences of your rebellion against God just by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ without having to keep any rules or any rituals or any other stuff at all. What if that gospel is the wrong gospel? Well, I want to suggest to you that if that is the wrong gospel, if Paul got it wrong or if he didn't have the right credentials or the right CV, then the whole of Christianity fails and falls. So that's how serious Paul's credentials are. His critics in the first century were accusing him of not having the proper qualifications to be a preacher of the gospel. Now, Paul wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus. So you can see where they were coming from. In fact, as we found out in our passage, and we'll explore a bit later, he was an enemy of Christianity. His opponents claimed he did not have the authority to spread the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection the way he did. And so what I want to do with you this morning is to unpick this passage using five words, all beginning with R. This is a Lanarkshire conservative evangelical meeting. So there are five points and they all begin with the same letter. That also helps individuals who are prone to wander, uh, I'll not name any names, um, to be able to follow through the sermon and work out how close we are to the end. <laughs> the first word is revelation. 
And we find that in verses 11 and 12. Paul had an intellect the size of Jupiter. If the gospel message Paul is talking about had been the product of his own thinking and his own theological reflection, then the strong language he uses in verses 8 and 9, which we didn't read, but if you just have a wee look there, verses 8 and 9 in the same chapter, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. And then, in case you didn't get that the first time, he says exactly the same words in the next verse. So when the Bible repeats itself, you pay attention, right? So if anyone preaches another gospel other than the one I preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. If he was only relying on his intellect and his own theological understanding, that sounds quite arrogant, doesn't it? If you don't believe what I believe, let you be eternally condemned. And if he was just making that up, what arrogance. But Paul wants to make it clear that the content of the gospel he preached wasn't based on a dissertation he wrote for a PhD in some theological seminary in the first century. It wasn't a dissertation that he had come up with on his own. The gospel he preached wasn't some garbled, cobbled together bits of the Jewish faith and a bit from here and a bit from there and a bit from elsewhere and we'll just pull it all together and let's call that the gospel. He wants the Galatians to understand that it had been given to him directly by Jesus Christ himself. To use his own word in verse 12, it came to him through revelation. It came from the mind of God himself. And that didn't just make the gospel special, it made Paul special too. It meant that he, like the other disciples who had spent time with Jesus, was an apostle too. You may be familiar with the phrase, first-generation Christians. In fact, you might even describe yourself as one. We talk about first-generation Christians as people who come from families that don't believe as families, from families who are not yet Christian. My wife is a first-generation Christian. She's the only Christian believer in her family. And that might be you this morning. You might see yourself as a first-generation Christian. But really, what I want to say to you this morning is that only the apostles in the New Testament were truly first-generation Christians. Why do I say that? Well, only they did not depend on material that had been handed down from other people. We depend on God's word, don't we? We depend on the scriptures and 2,000 years of church history. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. But they weren't. Everything that they received, they received directly as first-generation believers. They were true first-generation Christians who had been given a unique first-hand, first-generation, God-given mandate to define the gospel for everyone else. So the gospel that we preach today isn't defined by us. We don't make it up as we go along. We preach it as handed down from them. And so it's very important that the message that we preach is preserved. 
in its authentic state. And that's what Paul was concerned about. So Revelation's our first word. Our second word is rigor. And we find that in verses 13 and 14. Paul now reminds the Galatians of his pre-Christian past. Now that's something we need to be careful about. We all have one. Those of us who are Christian believers, we all have a pre-Christian past. We didn't inherit our Christianity from our parents. It's not a second-hand thing. It's something that we have embraced ourselves, that we have believed ourselves. We have come to faith ourselves. We all have a pre-Christian past, but it's not always helpful to talk in great detail and lurid technicolor about all the things that we did before we were Christians. In our evangelical circles, certainly in times past, we were actually, I think, well, we were quite good at that, but on reflection, maybe quite bad at that. If somebody came to faith from a background where they'd been in a gang or they'd been stabbing people and beating people up on a Saturday night outside the dance halls and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember as a young fellow hearing testimonies like that. People, these guys would be dragged up on, usually guys, although women, uh, occasionally we got to hear them, not very often. Um, uh, guys would be dragged up onto the platform and, and, and they told their story and how God had saved them in such a remarkable way. And I remember sitting down there as a wee boy growing up in a small brethren hall in Les Mahego thinking, wow, I didn't even know there was a thing like a nightclub. You know, how, how exciting. I mean, Les Mahego doesn't have many of them, right? And I remember thinking, oh gosh, well, uh, you know, I, that's, not, that's not like my experience. You know, I, I've just grown up in this little backwoods place and I've come to believe in Jesus as a 10-year-old. How boring. God must love them an awful lot more than he loves me. I must be some kind of setting rater. Do you see? But if I were to bring up onto the stage today, I'm not going to because, well, you'll see in a minute for obvious reasons. If we were to play up on the screen all of your non-Christian pasts, everyone here, up on the big screen here, and we took the most lurid one, put them over here, that's the worst, the worst sinner, pre-Christian in here, the one who had done the worst things, we put them on one side. And then the one who'd done the least number of sinful things over here. Let me ask you, which is more loved by God? Let me ask you, which has a higher or greater place in the kingdom? Well, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, isn't it? So we need to be careful about our pre-Christian past. Paul doesn't tell us his pre-Christian past in order to glorify it. What he does here is to show that he wasn't exactly the hottest prospect for a gospel preacher that the world's ever seen. He says, look, if you think this gospel that I'm preaching has a human origin, decide for yourselves after you look at my testimony. He was the most unlikely candidate to come to faith 
probably that the world has ever seen. And in verses 13 and 14, you'll notice he describes himself as the fanatic's fanatic. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And when he gives a fuller account of his testimony in Acts 26 before King Agrippa, he says in verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, the Jews all know the way I've lived since I was a child. They've known me since I was a nipper. They've known that I was the boy with the most stars at Jewish Sunday school. All the way through, I was the top student. At Gamaliel's rabbinic school, I was the first-class honors guy. I live as a Pharisee, and I, am a Pharise I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So Paul had come from one of the most heavy-duty religious backgrounds you can imagine. His personal commitment wasn't superficial. He was absolutely fanatical, and his exacting, rigorous religious standards weren't just applied to the law of God in its basic form. Oh no, not for Paul. Paul also took the halakha, the rabbinic commandments, and glorified them. That's what he's talking about there when he's talking about the traditions of his fathers. Because what the Jewish rabbinic schools did was they had all sorts of kind of colleges of, a bit like different colleges where young Jewish boys could go to learn their faith. And they were all headed up by a rabbi. Many universities, if you want to call them that. And the rabbi would have their own school of disciples. That's the model Jesus used, by the way. But they, they, they had these rabbinic schools. But each of the rabbinic schools had their own interpretation of the baseline law. And between them all, they'd added on something like 613 extra rules. Uh, 365 of them were thou shalt nots, by the way, just one for every day of the year. That's quite interesting, isn't it? But here's how it worked. You had a law, and then you had all these interpretations of the law by multiple rabbinic schools, and suddenly the traditions of the law, this was the thing Jesus criticized the Pharisees for, you might remember, the traditions of the law became bigger than the law itself. So you could find out how religious, or you could see how religious and devout you were. The rank-and-file Jewish people could see how devout their leaders were by the degree to which they kept all these myriad interpretations of the law. And that's what Paul says here. I was fanatical about tradition. So much so that not only did he want others to be like him, he hated others that weren't. And he persecuted them. And he particularly went after this budding sect in Judaism, as it was then, Christianity. Because here was a rabbi, Jesus, teaching freedom from the law, reinterpreting the law as something inward, not outward. And Paul was having none of that at all. He coordinated the stoning of Stephen to death. We know that from Acts 7 and 8. And he testifies to that in verse 13. Do you notice what he says to the Galatians? You know how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. Here was a man who, in our language today, was a religious terrorist. 
Paul's the kind of guy, before he became a Christian, who would throw torches or incendiary devices through the door of this church and set it on fire or blow it up. He's the kind of guy who would put a gun at the head of Christian missionaries dressed in orange jumpsuits and blow their brains out. That is Paul, pre-conversion. He was intent on destroying, destroying the church of God, not just impeding it, but wiping it off the face of the earth. And yet, get this, and yet, it was that very background that perfectly fitted Paul to be the person under God's grace who would defend the gospel fearlessly and carry it to the European non-Jewish Gentile nations. Now, you may feel this morning that your pre-Christian background has left you with a lot of baggage. We talked about our backgrounds a minute ago. It might be that you're carrying this morning a baggage of religious legalism and the guilt of hypocrisy if you were brought up in a very strict religious environment that empty ritual that joyless observance that external show that might be your background or it might be the baggage of remorse and the regret for the things you did before you were converted and saved by the grace of God the wasted years, the addictions, the things that you did that you can't undo. And you carry even today the scars of that. Friend, Paul's CV teaches you and me this morning to embrace your background as a gift of God's grace. It was that background he used to bring you to himself. Those circumstances, those people, that sense of need. It was that background that he used to get you to where you are today. He knew your background before he called you. He knew all about you. In fact, in his sovereign purposes, he had ordained and allowed those things that happened to you and your upbringing and your past and all the stuff from before. To bring you to himself. These things are part of his story. In your life. They're not separate. And he called you. Knowing your background. Just as he called Paul. Knowing his background. Because your background. Has perfectly prepared you. For the work and the ministry. And the good works. That he wants you to do. In his kingdom now. He doesn't want those, that background to be a, an impediment to your Christian service. He wants it to empower your Christian service, to relate to all of the people in all the situations that you know well in the past and bring gospel light into those situations. Only God can do that. Only he can transform lives in that way. And so our third word, is revolution. And we find that in verses 15 and 16. 
Because to add further weight to Paul's claim that his gospel message came from God rather than from his own reasoning and reflection, Paul cites his own conversion on the road to Damascus when he was on the way to hunt down more Christians like a first century Terminator. And he describes his conversion as an act of divine revelation. He was converted by God by direct revelation and having been converted by direct revelation, he claims that he was commissioned to preach the gospel by the same direct revelation from God. That's what he says in verse 16. I didn't receive this gospel from any man. I didn't go and speak to people and pick up a few bits and pieces and cobble it together and then start preaching. This gospel, Paul's gospel, is a global gospel. There was a real, real danger in the first century church that the, that the Christian church would end up as a Jewish sect and never break out of its Jewish identity. And that there would be two churches then, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And much of the New Testament is written to ensure that there is one people of God, not two. And that's what Paul's holding out for here. You do not need to become a Jew before you become a Christian. People in the Galatian churches, the, Juda the Judaizing people, people wanted people to come into the Christian church, but they wanted to come into the Christian church and be circumcised first, to become a Jew first before you became a Christian, do you see? Paul says, no, 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 no. You become a Christian not based on the works of the law, but on the gift of grace that is coming to you through Jesus Christ and his death. And some people in verse 7, as we already saw earlier, were accusing Paul of not sharing the full gospel with the Galatians. I'm astonished, he says in verse 6, that some of you are so quickly deserting the one who called you and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. These people are saying, Paul's not giving you the full story. His gospel version is too basic. There's a lot more to it than that. You need to keep this rule and that rule and this ritual and that ritual. No, says Paul. That was my old life in the Jewish religion and no one was better at that than me. But God revealed to me by direct revelation that all of those rules and rituals of the faith that I grew up with will not put me right with God. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. And when that was revealed to me, says Paul, it transformed my life. My life was revolutionized. Because the gospel isn't Judaism or the Jewish faith version 2.0. It's for all nations, for all people. It was completely radical. And it didn't require and still doesn't require people to keep rules and regulations and rituals. It's a gospel of free grace. There are still people today, and you may be one of them this morning, who say, I would love to be a Christian, David, but I just don't think I could keep it up. But here is the glory of the gospel. You don't need to keep it up. None of us can keep it up. If it looks like we're keeping it up, then we're failing you by 
putting on a mask. Jesus has done it all. He's the hero of this story. He's kept it for you. The Christians you know aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. So don't let your fear of perfection hold you back from coming to Christ to be saved and forgiven. It's his work in your life that makes you a Christian and it's his work in your life that keeps you a Christian. Fourth word, retreat. Central to the argument of Paul's opponents was the allegation that he basically cobbled together his message. We've seen that. And that he was taking it from multiple sources and then claiming that he too was an apostle. But to answer the allegation that he'd simply derived his message from others, the chief suspects being the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, that, that, that's the, there was no internet back then, remember, so he couldn't go online and cobble something together or use artificial intelligence GPS chat, write me a definition of the gospel. He couldn't do that. So he had to physically go to Jerusalem to see, he would have had to simply go to, to Jerusalem and speak to the people who were the, the Christian leaders, right? To get a version of the gospel, to understand what the gospel was. And he says, no, I didn't do that. That's the significance of him saying, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go where all the knowledge about the gospel was. I didn't go there. I spent the first three years of my Christian life in Arabia and Damascus. And even, even when he went to Jerusalem for the first time, as he tells us in verse 19, he only went for a fortnight's holiday to see Peter. And he bumped into James while he was there as well. But that was it, a fortnight. Well, you don't build 24% the New Testament and a fortnight with Peter, do you? That's his argument. So as far as the church in Jerusalem and Judea were concerned, Paul was a total stranger for the first three years of his Christian life. There's no way he could have learned his understanding of the gospel there. And his testimony is that the gospel was given to him directly by Christ himself. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in Arabia. It would seem that what happened in Arabia stayed in Arabia. But it may be that the three-year period that Paul spent in Arabia and Damascus was a mirror of the three-year period that Jesus spent with his disciples in his public ministry. And this may be, we can't be sure, but it may be God's way of validating and teaching Paul over a three-year period in the same way that Jesus taught his other apostles. In any event, what we do know is that this time in Arabia was spent reflecting and receiving direct revelation from God to the point where real development took place in Paul's character and his thinking. And there's an important Christian principle here. We spend much of our lives thinking that we'll get around to it, whatever it happens to be. We'll get around to it. Yeah, I'd like to spend more time studying the Bible. I'll get around to it when, when a quieter day comes. I'll get around to it when, when, uh, when I leave school or when I leave uni or when I've got this studying over or when I've got to the next level at my job or when I've got the kids out of the house or when, when we're always looking forward to the next thing and here I am at 62 retiring in two weeks and thinking where did that go? 
right? There's never a quieter day coming. And we're so bad at making space for things and, and planning for our own Christian growth. Don Carson said famously once, I heard him preaching saying that much praying is not done simply because we don't plan to pray. We mean to. We know we, know we need to. And so it is in terms of our own Christian growth and understanding. I'm, I'm grateful now at this age of my life for the time that I spent getting to grips with the Bible before our son was born when I was 33 years old. I mean, we were quite kind of getting anxious at the age of 33. I mean, that's quite an old father. Back in the 80s, 90s, not so much now. But, you know, there's never a quieter day coming. Make the use of the time you have and... and and get to know your faith. Even in our Christian churches, we're obsessed with activities, right? I mean, you'd think that the church sometimes was an events-arranging organization. That's certainly true in Christian unions. I remember my son once when he was studying at Dundee University, Willie Phillip from the Tron in Glasgow came to speak to the CU. And at CU, they are obsessed with events. Trust me, they are. They even have a thing called Events Week, where there's a different event on every night of the week. And they come up with all these crazy things that stress everybody out. And, and they're all tearing lumps out of each other because of the anxiety and the stress. But it's Christian ministry, right? I remember Craig told me that Willie Phillip came to speak to their CU group once and, um, and it hit Craig very hard and he passed it on to me and he said, if you're really concerned about evangelism and you really care about your non-Christian friends, invite them to plain old church. If you really believe that God saves people, not you, and he does the work, not you, invite them to plain old church. What we win them with, we win them too. So our lives are shot through with a massive emphasis on activity, events, and achievements. And I wonder sometimes how much of that is about us. Look what we've done. And how much time do we really spend in, in quietness and reflection? There's a passage in the Old Testament that says, in quietness and confidence, your strength will be renewed. I'm going to give you 15 seconds of silence now in a sermon, and that's very unusual, and you'll, just let's do that, 15 seconds of silence, and you'll see how long that seems in our crazy, cluttered, noisy world. So the 15 seconds starts now. Oh, some of you are getting quite anxious there. 15 seconds, nobody's speaking. Wow. Do you see? But in that 15 seconds, what transactions can take place between you and God if you make time to hear him and hear his word? Notice one more thing here about Paul's retreat. When he emerged from his retreat, he didn't function as a lone wolf. Did you notice that? In verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to have my 15 days with Peter and to speak to the other, uh, uh, and to speak to James. See, what Paul wanted to do, you'll find out more about this if you read Acts. Uh, what he wanted to do was to make sure that his 
understanding of the gospel actually was congruent and resonant with the authentic teaching of the apostles. And you can read about that council at Jerusalem back in the book of Acts, where they argued about the place of the law in the life of the Christian and whether Christians needed to be circumcised or not. But one thing from this passage, the Christian church knows nothing of lone wolves doing their own thing without accountability, without governance, without checks, without balances, without living and working in community. We've all known Christian ministries and Christian ministers who, because of a lack of accountability in these areas, have made shipwreck of their lives and their ministry. We all know of that scenario. And many of these individuals, visionaries though they may have been, refuse to make themselves accountable, properly accountable, to other Christian believers for their work and their ministry and to test it and to be accountable, to put proper governance around it. That is so important. So important. No room for a lone wolf. He goes back to Jerusalem, verse 18, to make himself accountable and to check, sense check his understanding of the gospel with Peter and James. And being part of a Christian community is so important for us, so important for all of us, whether we're in full-time Christian ministry or not, it saves us from extremes, doesn't it? It knocks the rough edges off us. It challenges our personal hobby horses. I don't have the right to have things my way in church every week, all the time. It keeps us humble. And our final word, yes, we're nearly done. Final R is his report at the end of his CV. I could have called this his references, really. References are important in your CV, right? Because other people will come and ask them about you. Well, what were people saying about Paul? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? In verse 22 and 23, he says, I, I wasn't known to the churches of Judea, but they'd heard a report about me. And look at that report. What a report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Isn't that the most remarkable testimonial that you could ever have on your CV? Especially if you were Paul. From a persecutor to a preacher. The least likely person on the first century planet to become a Christian leader is now in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, and now it makes sense what he says next, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. No wonder they praise God because of him in verse 24. Do you notice that? That verse at the end of the chapter. And they praise God because of me. Now notice they didn't praise Paul because of God. Sometimes we're more concerned that in God's work people will praise us because of God's work in us. And for sure it's good and right to encourage one another. But they praised God because of Paul. And there are two challenging questions here, right as we finish. And the first is this. Who are you praising God for this morning? Who are you praising God for? 
Who has been that person of influence in your life? That preacher, that elder, that parent, that friend, that author, that songwriter, that deacon, that helper. Who are these people? That role model, that person of Christian influence, who are you praising God for this morning? Now, obviously, they had told Paul that they were praising God because of him. So it might be a good time to tell that person that you're praising God because of them and their influence in your life. And finally, the other side of that coin, who's praising God this morning because of you? Because of your example, because of your ministry, your kindness, your perseverance, your Christ-likeness, your generosity, your self-sacrifice. Who's praising God this morning because of you? May we be those people who, because of God's grace in our lives, will cause others to praise him as well. Amen.